Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. On today's study, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We'd like to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us as we factor the truth of God's Word into our lives and hopefully your life as well. Paul, if you would take a moment and let everyone know how they can participate in today's study. Well, we are on several ways uh, that you can uh, view our uh, studies together. And so you might look at YouTube or you might look at Facebook or uh, Twitter. Are we on Instagram yet, John? No, not yet. No. Okay. Well, we are on Twitter and YouTube and uh, Facebook and also on truthfactor.com. And you can look at the live viewing page. But on any of those social media, what you need to search for is Truth Factor Live. And you may also want to send us a question. And you can do that at questions at truthfactor.com. And when you make your comments or you ask your questions, we're always excited. And we want to introduce those into our study so that you can be a participant uh, as, as well as we are. All righty. Thank you, Paul. Let's see. I think we might have had a minor issue, but I think we are. The what? Do me a favor. Someone drop a comment into Facebook and someone drop a comment into the YouTube chat. So I can just make sure what I monitor with is working properly. I just did YouTube. All right. I just did Truth Factor page. Okay, there's Paul on YouTube and someone do Facebook and we'll be in good shape. Let's see. I'll leave that lower third up for just a couple of more minutes. We might add to our viewers that we're also a podcast, and you can find uh, Truth Factor episodes on uh, under Truth Factor Live through your Apple Podcast device, too. Is that on TuneIn as well? TuneIn as well, I believe, yes. yes I, I thought it was. Yeah, I think so. I believe that's the other one it's on. Okay. I need to try to make a lower third that can bring that up at some point. If you have one of those Alexa devices, I hope I didn't just tell, get her attention there. But if yeah, you have everybody, one of those, Alexa is listening to everybody, and we uh, say Truth Factor Live, and she'll play the most recent episode. That's right. Nice. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our study today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. So let me make sure I have that all poised here on my side. And Paul, I'll start with you if you would. Um, okay, I don't know what. So let's start there and read, if you would, the first five verses of Acts chapter 15, sir. I will, uh, John, and we'll be reading in Acts 15, 1 through 5. I have a heading in my Bible that says this is the Jerusalem Council, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as we go right along. But let's read the first five verses to start out with. The scripture here says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. All righty. Thank you very much, Paul. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Uh, someone reported to me that we might have an issue on our Facebook page. So I'm going to double check that real quick. Let's see. Bear with me just a moment. It says, this broadcast has expired. Well, that doesn't sound good at all, does it? All right, let me restart the Facebook. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the study going. 
Um, Paul, I'm gonna let me. I'm gonna ask you a question here, real quick, and and have, if you would talk about this while I do a little bit of behind the scenes scenes work. Um, where did Paul go? There's I, Paul. Sorry, I can do that. <laughs> um, explain a little bit the the the. We we know the background of Paul and Barnabas having come off their their trip going back to thirteen and following. Um. Explain the issue that has developed there, if you would, in Antioch, there in Judea, if you would. Well, there seems to be that uh, there are some who are, and, and it seems to be led by some of the Pharisees. And if you think about this, the Pharisees had a lot of power in the Mosaic uh, religion, the Mosaic law. And so uh, they wanted to incorporate a lot of the Mosaic law, or all of it, into their Christianity, because it says that there were, these were Pharisees who believed, but yet they wanted to bind circumcision and to uh, command them to adhere to the law of Moses. And so when you think about the question that John's asking here, that there's being sent to Jerusalem uh, to talk to the apostles and elders, I think they all uh, needed to not determine what was right, but to study together to know what was right or to... Uh, gain a greater understanding from one another about what was right. And certainly Jerusalem was still a center. Uh, still some of the apostles who were at Jerusalem still held uh, a lot of esteem, a lot of respect. And, and so this was a good thing for them to do, to go and to discuss these things. Uh, what do you think about that, Brian, as far as uh, Paul and Barnabas being sent? This is not where they're going to go vote on what's right and what's wrong. Uh, they're not going to have to uh, make that kind of determination. But but in their looking at this issue together, uh, for them all to get together and to have this discussion. You know, I think it's a really complicated issue, in part because sometime before this, most likely, the circumstances that are recorded in Galatians chapter 2 may have occurred. So it may be that this this contention and this dissension, if Galatians chapter 2 is either the lead up to it or occurred sometime before it, it's either caused problems before or it's causing a great deal of dissension even in that moment. I find it interesting the way Luke records this because he, he just kind of states it as a fact, whereas in Galatians chapter 2, whatever whatever dissension was there was, or as Paul would describe it, just almost a heresy of a form. Um, you know, as a kind of a side to that, I actually think what's really interesting here is this description in verse 5 of Pharisees who were Christians. And I've always found that interesting because it does not seem to indicate, uh, or it seems to indicate that they were still Pharisees, or at least they saw themselves as Pharisees, and yet they were believers. And, you know, sometimes when we look at the Pharisees in the Bible, we're, we're so adamantly opposed to their opposition to Christ that we saw, that it just seems impossible to believe that a Pharisee could be a Christian. But what's interesting is not only are they identified as current tense Pharisees, but even Paul himself identifies himself as still being a Pharisee, which gives us a very interesting insight into, you know, the uh, both what it meant to be a Pharisee, but also sometimes uh, what it is to be a Christian too. And I've always found that a very interesting little uh, just a, a minor statement there that, that gives me a lot to ponder when I think about, you know, somebody could be both a Christian and a Pharisee and not necessarily be in violation of either. Yeah, as far as their heritage, their culture, uh, they maintain that. And by that way, I've heard people talk about Pharisees in the church today. That's not exactly what they mean. Uh, right. But instead, these people who had that Jewish tradition of being very strict according to the law, and and they do that. You know, Tom, if we look at this, uh, I think on John's outline, we have a question here. What information did Paul and Barnabas share with the brethren in Phoenicia and Samaria as they traveled to Jerusalem? And so uh, we see that they're going there. What do they have to share along the way? And what do they have to share once they get there? Yeah. Well, it says there in verse number three that they were passing through and they described the conversion of the Gentiles. So, so basically the point that is being made, I mean, he's completed this first journey. They've completed this first journey. And they've seen all kinds of people obey the gospel. And, and they're describing how there was no difference in the way that they were able to teach Gentiles as opposed to Jews. And by implication, because they were able to perform miracles, uh, God had to have been with them. And 
And you might even add to that, the, if you go back to John uh, 14 through 16, and Jesus' instructions, or John 13, where, where he talks about how the Spirit's going to guide you into all truth, how much of what they were teaching was also being directed by the Holy Spirit. So they're just describing that that Gentiles are receiving the gospel and not a single word has been uttered about the need for them to convert to Judaism or follow Judaistic laws, including circumcision. I think that's really interesting that they're they're sharing those things as they go. It's not like they think, well, i got to wait till we get to Jerusalem to talk about this. Uh, they're sharing it as they go. And so I think John's back, and uh, I will uh, see what John has to say. All right. Thanks, Paul. Um, something's up with the Facebook stream, so we apologize for that. Hopefully you've seen the message and have jumped over to live.truthfactor.com or our YouTube page, youtube.com slash truthfactorlive slash live. So, yes, with, with everything y'all have been talking about, uh, let's go ahead and take a second, and I'm going to share the uh, question for the chat room real quick before I forget it. Some of the Pharisees who believed taught circumcision was necessary to be saved. Chat room. In what letter does Paul deal extensively with this false teaching? Hopefully no one has spilt the beans amongst our numbers. <laughs> but kind of think about that. In what letter does Paul deal extensively with this? And we'll talk more about that here in a couple minutes. I appreciate what everyone has said. And there's really only one other thought I wanted to bring out on this section before we um, go to the chat room question after what y'all covered, Paul. I appreciate it. How did some of the believing Pharisees in Jerusalem react to Paul and Barnabas's report regarding Gentiles being converted to the Lord? So kind of think about this for a second. And um, Brian, I'll, I'll, I'll go and throw this at you. So I think we've, we've been talking some about it already. But now they make it down to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas are giving all, you know, they're, they're telling what had happened on their journey and how many Gentiles were saved and many Gentiles were com converted. Um, what did some of the Pharisees there who were, I'm going to say members of the church in Jerusalem, I believe they were believers that obeyed the gospel. What was their complaint? You know, and, and I kind of look at this, John, I wonder if it's, a complaint as much as what they see as the natural next step, uh, that they would believe that, well, naturally, if somebody is going to come to Christ, they must come to the religion that Jesus himself practiced, the, the law of Moses, and uh, convert to that by keeping the law of Moses. Of course, circumcision being that that chief discriminator between the two. Um, I've, I've actually wondered many times if this was a complaint or simply an observation on their part um, although Acts chapter 11, we saw it, there was a great complaint about the conversion of Gentiles. Uh, sometimes I wonder if this is their complaint or they're just saying it just needs to happen. Well, Brian, do you think that they are of the same mindset as the, uh, the, the, the Pharisees that troubled Antioch? You know, going earlier, what Paul was contending with is that you must be circumcised to be saved. Do you think this so you idea mean, is the, the same? The one that troubled Antioch in Galatians chapter 2, perhaps? Well, there. Well, that is a good point. I, I I think Galatians happened before this. I agree. Yeah. Um. But no, look there in verse. Um, verse. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. I I, I uh, kind of missed what you were asking me. You're talking about back in verse one and two. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And so, uh, are they of the same mindset? Uh, it would seem almost certainly the case. And. It's not impossible. This is the mindset of most of the Jews or most of the Christians in Jerusalem. Well, uh, yeah. you know, it does say that the Pharisees tend to leave this. But again, if Galatians 2 is referring to events beforehand, it might be. And I think I, I would even throw it out there, John. I don't think it would be unreasonable or, or at least it, it's, it's a very likely thing that probably everybody at the church in Jerusalem is Jewish. Um, I mean, yeah. you probably have so many Jews there that they're already all circumcised. It's just a, a natural part of their practice. And it's such a it's such a cultural imperative. And and I've tried to think many times about something we can contrast that to as Americans and our way of viewing Christianity that might be so ingrained in us that we don't realize that other cultures might see something differently. But that that they saw this as so natural that they said, well of course you have to be circumcised. That's you know that's that's an obvious or a given. And so yeah, I think that to go back to answer your real, real question, I'm sure that they probably all saw it the same way. Yeah, and it, 
you know, oftentimes we, we want to come down hard on them because, I mean, think about the message Peter received, but it, it was, it still took some time for them to get the concept that circumcision was no longer required by God. Um, that they would learn about the old law being nailed to the cross. They would learn about all that, but this will take time for them to digest and, and, and I think, I think some of the Jewish leaders saw that this was the way they should be going. You know, this is the new bandwagon. So let's kind of, let's kind of jump on that and get control of it. And I think that's you know, what Paul's dealing with. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that back in Acts 11, they were just, ups- there were, there were people that were just upset that Gentiles were being converted. Yeah. Um, that's right. And that seemed to be dealt with very effectively. That complaint doesn't seem to come back up again, but this yeah. issue of, of circumcision, you know, we might even consider circumcision even precedes the law of Moses, as does the clean and unclean concept. So that, you know, if somebody said, well, it's not just the law of Moses, this goes back to Abraham. And, you know, the the appeal there might be to made to say that, well, you know, the law of Moses was nailed to the cross, but, but circumcision is before that, you know, that that, that might be their, I, I, I think to some degree, again, I'm very, I'm very sympathetic with them yeah. because I can see why this would make sense to some of them. Uh, I can see why they might be thinking, well, you know, this, this, this follows, this flows. And, you know, we ought to, we ought to be pursuing it this way. And of course, obviously it's wrong and, and no better place we see that than, than Galatians two. But, uh, but really I can, I'm sympathetic because I can see why it would make sense to them. This wasn't yeah. their being mean or cruel or unfair. I think for a lot of them, this just made a lot of sense. God's people have always been circumcised, and if they're going to be God's people, they need to be circumcised. Right. And if you're saved by faith, like Abraham, Abraham was circumcised. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting point with that. Um, Any other thoughts from the guys before we move on, before we do the chat, address the chat room? All right, let's go ahead and take a second and bring up Gregor's answer to the question. The question was, and let me... Bring that up one more time. And and what letter does Paul deal extensively with the false teaching here that um, we see being taught there by uh, some of the Pharisees? And Gregor says Romans deals with this a lot as well as Galatians. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, what the author is undetermined, as well as the letters to the Corinthians. It seems it was a common problem in their early church. And I think Gregor's right about that. Uh, what I had in mind, of course, was Paul's letter to the churches throughout Galatians. Um, they seem to have been, you know, bewitched by this teaching, you know, amazed to the point of where they would follow it. And we see that, and we see kind of that idea throughout the book of Galatians. But it is dealt with in Hebrews, in Romans, and you talked about 1 Corinthians. And so um, it, it was a common problem, not so much for those converted out of idolatry, unless they were heavily influenced by the Jews, and the Jews needed to understand. It makes me wonder if the church in Antioch had a number of Gentiles converted to the truth, and maybe that's what was instigating some of the problems. All right, yeah, any and, thoughts and or comments? You know, Go ahead, Tom. Just real quickly add to that, just remember Galatians is believed to be one of the more early letters that was written. It was one of the first ones. Uh, the others come along later, so... Well, that's right. Some scholars say that it was written before Acts 15 because Paul doesn't mention the letter sent to the, the Gentile believers, you know, and, and, and it would really add a lot to, to understanding why he and Barnabas so vehemently contended with these people, you know, that's a good right. point, Todd. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump to our next section, verses six through 21 and to do that tom would you please read that for us acts 15 verses 6 through 21 yeah sorry i got the wrong thing up there we go did you just ask me to read i did tom okay yeah it it froze up that's the reason i'm asking so i didn't hear my name okay got it so okay now through verse 21 please Okay, now as now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
So God, who knows the hearts, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will re Build the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. All right. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Let's jump back up there to verse 6 within the text, and let me bring the questions to the forefront here for us. First thing, chat room, here's what we'd like for you to consider, if you would, regarding this particular section. And that is this. What do you think Peter meant when he said, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor were nor we able to bear? So kind of think about that, that statement there. What is he referring to when he says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither we are, neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? All right. Now, with that being said, let's go ahead and consider a couple of things within this particular section. Now, Brian and Tom, Paul had to step away for a couple of minutes, but in a lot of the um, study Bibles I have, and even commentaries you look at, when, when they talk about this chapter, they really make this out to be some big council, some big meeting. And some even look at James and his role here as supporting the idea that James was the bishop there in Jerusalem. Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this? Do, do, they think, do you think they make more out of this meeting than, than what it actually was or what? Let's start with you, Brian. That's a, that's a great comment. And as you say, uh, there are some that make a great distinction out of this. The Roman Catholic Church sees this as the first of many councils, which they themselves believe they're authorized to call. And they point to this as an example of that. Um, and certainly the very term council is in the idea of coming together to discuss something would apply in this circumstance. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that it isn't the church that makes a decision here. It is indeed the very things that we often point to that make decisions today. The commandments of God or the direct statements of God, the examples of things that are revealed by God, and conclusions or inferences that are necessarily arrived at that, that, are, uh, that are absolutely conclusive in that sense. So however we would refer to this, and, and as I said, it isn't the first of many According to the Bible, this is the only time such a thing happens and comes together. Uh, I would suggest that that I wouldn't I wouldn't be offended by using the term council, but it is not the first of many. It's simply one time when a very important issue was necessary. And Jesus had said way back in Matthew chapter 18 that whenever two or more of the apostles gathered together, that that his authority would be there, and whatever they bound on earth would have been bound in heaven. And I would say that this is probably a very direct application of that authoritative statement by Jesus. Okay. All right. Uh, Tom, any thoughts? Yeah. Well, well, well first of all, as to it being, uh, 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 and it, I, think the, I think it was a meeting that was a big deal. 
and, and, and it was an important meeting that took place. But here's one of the points that I make in dealing with this. Why is this in Jerusalem? Because it was false teachers from Jerusalem that came to Antioch to make the demands. So what they were doing is they weren't going down to Jerusalem for some official decree. They were going down to Jerusalem where the problem was, and they were dealing with it at the source. And so that's one of the things that I see in this particular on this particular occasion. It's getting together everybody. You know, I've I've known of congregations where when there is an intercongregational problem. And, and somebody asks, how is that possible? Where you have a member that moves from one congregation to another, makes accusations, or wants to place membership, but they, they hear about things. The elders of those two congregations may get together and talk about what's going on so that a proper decision can be made. And they're still maintaining their autonomy. That's what you have here. Uh, you have You have Judaizing teachers from Jerusalem coming to Antioch, demanding that they be circumcised. And so they go back to Jerusalem and they deal with it at the source. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. But my my, the, my question has always been, I mean, what pops in my brain every time I read this, why didn't the brethren in Antioch trust Paul and Barnabas? I mean, Paul, Paul knew the truth on the matter. And and here in just a minute, we're going to find that Peter knew the truth on the matter, although Paul Peter wasn't with Paul. Why was there this great need to send them to Jerusalem? Now, I like your point that the false teachers had come from Jerusalem, okay? But, do, but Brian, you mentioned something a while ago about where there's two or more. Do you think that because there weren't two apostles or maybe Paul wasn't one of the original apostles, maybe that's why they felt the need to send to the other apostles? I, I do think that the distinction made there at verse 2 about there being apostles in Jerusalem would, would be at least part of that. I, actually, I think what Tom, Tom said was very good too, though, um, and that I do think that a big part of this is they're going to the root of the problem. But I also I, I do think that there was a necessity to engage the apostles. You know, Barnabas' apostleship is a very mysterious thing to me. I, I'm still not sure... Uh, how well I understand that. I, I would say Paul certainly makes the case that his apostleship is equal to the other apostles on repeated occasions, but I'm not sure about Barnabas. And I do believe that what Jesus said in Matthew 18 was a very specific statement that, that two or more of them, and again, I want to be very clear that that's the apostles Jesus is talking to, were necessary to be together to make a determination about something that uh, would be something that would be bound on earth as it had already been bound in heaven, kind of manipulating that language to make that clear. So um, I can see a little bit of both. I see exactly what Tom said to be true. Um, but I also think that it was it was a bit necessary that this was resolved once and for all, that yeah. they didn't want this hanging over their head everywhere they went, especially since they just come back from a journey into Galatia. And obviously this had already popped up in Galatia. The Galatian letter is written um, in that time frame. So that this is, you know, this is, uh, it's coming up again, you know, it's, it's popping up again, and, and we've got to deal with this once and for all. I really see that as a big part of what's going on, too. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and just add to that, Jerusalem didn't need to hang it over their head either. That's see, right. I, that's I mean, right. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's something to consider in this, because you have the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem, as we shall see, they write the response. So, you know, we know what happens after this. You know, we know about the second and third journeys where these Judaizing teachers don't stop. But their authority with Jerusalem has effectively been cut off as a result of this letter that they write. So by going down to the source and dealing with the problem there, it gets dealt with. But the whole point is this, but the whole point is this, this is not creating some church council which which kind of the question that led up to this a church council from the standpoint of you know let's get together and uh decree doctrine and uh uh you know let, let, let's decide what let's decide what laws we want to what laws we want to keep and and uh yeah. what laws we want to make and which ones we don't yeah i think that's the big deal uh i think tom hit it on the head i think that's the big point is they weren't determining uh they weren't making the law they were determining what the law was. Exactly. Uh, they weren't. They weren't saying this is what the rule is going to be. 
They were saying, what is the rule that Christ has given us? And again, they're going to look at commandments, examples, necessary inferences. They're going to bring them all together and say, here is the conclusion that the Holy Spirit is giving us. Yeah. And and I think that that's what makes this such a valuable conversation is that is that this sets this tells us that not I mean God never came down and whispered in the apostles' ears and I, I hope that doesn't sound too you know uh, casual but I mean he doesn't tell them in a supernatural way here's the answer to this problem they have to figure it out exactly the way we have to figure out every problem we're going to have every question of doctrine that we're going to face they're going to have to figure this out exactly the way we are and I think that's such a a big idea here. Uh, to that end. Yeah. Hey, let, I, yeah I really, let me tell you an interesting word real quick, John, that, to add to what he said there. They discovered what the word says. Back to you. Now, okay. Uh, John, we didn't, we didn't answer the question about James as the bishop. What, what was your thought about that? Oh, I was just saying, I, I, I think that's an abuse of, um, of the context. Um, there's no evidence of a ruling bishop within the, the biblical text. It's not until secular letters by Ignatius, uh, towards the end of the first century that we see references to a singular ruling bishop. And, and I, I just, I'm just making the point that what, what they're doing is taking what was established by the end of the first century and looking back and using this as evidence, as, support for it instead of viewing the alteration by the end of the first century as going beyond the authority found within the scriptures there yeah Yeah, you know later on in Acts 21 we meet james again and it's always james and the elders you know and and i guess it would make sense that james would get his name mentioned prominently not just because of his relationship with christ but he was an inspired author in the new testament which makes him a prophet uh from what we understand of apostles and prophets so it would make sense that his name would get a mention there because we don't know of any of the other elders there. Unless unless John, we know John the Apostle was an elder, but I think he probably would have been young to have been an elder in Jerusalem. Or even Peter. Peter was an elder somewhere, and we don't know where he was an elder at. But uh, uh, other than them, and, and it could be that's why they're mentioned here in Galatians, but yeah. really I think that's why James gets mentioned because he's also a prophet. That's right. I mean, think about Judas and Silas are both called prophets. You know, James very well could have been, he could have been one of the elders of the congregation. You just, but but it just happens to be, he becomes, he's the spokesperson that draws the conclusion, you know, from everything that is said. Um, So let's, let's move on real quick though, from this. Um, Peter's summary is very simple. Peter talks about what he had seen and he's referencing the situation with Cornelius and and specifically, you'll note there in verse 8 there, he says, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them. So Peter's point is the Gentiles, God gave them the Holy Spirit. You, you, you look back in the biblical text um, to uh, chapter 8 and chapter, t- and chapter 10 and 11, and you see references to that when the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household. Then we look forward to Paul and Barnabas' part. There, there's no great um, record of what they said other than they related to them all the signs that God had done among the Gentiles to to confirm that they were intended to receive the truth there. Um, so with all that being said, James is going to kind of pull it all together. And let's see, there was... Um, Let's see, Tom. What was James's judgment ultimately regarding this matter? Well, he reached. He puts all the facts together, and his conclusion is, God did not say they have to be circumcised. Yeah, that, that, that's the summary. That's exactly right. And you and I looking at this, and, and having studied this for a long time within our own lives, it seems pretty obvious. But as Brian pointed out earlier, you know, looking at what the Pharisees are coming off of, um, and, and they, back in Acts chapter 11, they dealt with the situation with Peter and Cornelius. Um, and now Paul's talking about how all these Gentiles, you know, this is just too many changes at once. You know, what, what, what is, what is God's will on this? And James puts the puzzle pieces together. And, um, he even refers to prophecy. 
that talks about the Gentiles being saved. And so he renders uh, his judgment. Uh, Brian, Brian, look at there his judgment in verse 19. What is that? Uh, he sta- very stately, directly states there, I judge we should not trouble those among the Gentiles turning to God. Um, and, and in other words, they don't need to be circumcised. Um, and and uh, John, I'm going to jump right back one last time and make the plug to say, Peter made a necessary inference saying, hey, when, when Cornelius got converted, there was there was nothing. It, 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 the Holy Spirit left the impression that he, had, he, he was acceptable as he was. And then Paul and Barnabas give the examples of the conversion of Gentiles. And then James goes to the statement of God from the Old Testament. And again, that's where we have that direct statement, example, necessary inference kind of language that gives us all three of that. So the conclusion is God's God's purpose was that they didn't need to be circumcised. Okay. All right. All righty. Um, what about... Real quick here, and I thought you might talk more about it, but you didn't. What about the where he says, um, and let me let me bring this up on the screen so we can kind of walk through it here real quick. And I, I think that what he's about to tell them probably is directly related to the fact that they had come out of idolatry. But he says, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Um, and his point, he then says, for Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So, you know, the, the Jews know some of these limitations. They've been taught it. But the Gentiles need to hear that there are certain things that they should stay away from themselves. Um, yeah. I, I right, stayed away from that. I, I, wanted to, I wanted you to tell us what that was about, actually. So, what's that? I wanted you to tell us what that was about, uh, personally. Uh, that because that this 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 commandment can have some small amount of controversy to it exactly why it is this way it's worded very peculiar peculiarly it uh, uh the context of the statement is not the context of the uh, of the doctrine of Christ as much as it is the absence of offense against other Jews so um, and we often note that all three of these things are the things that are directly tied up to the worship, the pagan worship of Gentiles. And so yeah. a lot of times what we're what we think might be being said here. And let's be clear, uh, sexual immorality is condemned elsewhere in the Bible. Absolutely. Right. The question about eating things with blood or of the, you know, eating things sacrificed to idols becomes very ambiguous, especially if we look at what's stated in First Corinthians chapter eight. Um, as being an authority to say you can eat things that have been sacrificed to idols. So this is a really, um, you know, like I said, I, I'm hoping that, John, you shed all the light to make it all clear for me. <laughs> I personally, the way I see this is they are telling them to stay away from those things that would draw them back into idolatry. You know, Um You've left it behind. Think about the sacrificing unto idols. And I think that's the, the strangled from blood, um, and so forth. Things polluted by idolatry. Stay away from anything that might draw them back into that practice is kind of, kind of the way I interpret, if you would. And I think, I, I think that, that fits very well. I will say verse 21 seems to be an odd caveat. In other words, yeah. the reason for this commandment is that Moses has people that are are he's still preaching to in the synagogues every Sabbath. So then the question becomes, why does that matter? Now I think it matters, and, and I'm going to give you an I think. So we're we're going okay. from truth factor to supposition factor. We know sure. sometimes that goes that the way. The Brian factor. The Brian factor. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's even far more dangerous. Uh, later on, James will tell Paul something very similar. Whenever in Acts chapter 21, Paul comes back to Jerusalem and James says, you know, there are still devout Jews here. And I, and I would suggest that part of the indication here is the gospel still goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And, uh, and I think that's a very complex issue of itself as well. But that the idea is all over the world, there are still Jews who are following the law of Moses, but they're doing so because they haven't heard of Christ or they're just not familiar with Christ. It would be better that they're not dissuaded 
from obeying Christ because they hear of this new law that throws away and can, and and particularly engages in these these particularly evil characteristics of pagan worship that they want those things particularly emphasized perhaps and that would be uh, that would be part of the cause here. Okay, something that could be offensive to the. Yeah, particularly offensive because we know, like in Rome, in Acts chapter twenty-eight, when Paul gets to Rome, the Jews say, "You know, we don't really know about Christ, but we've heard a lot about the the stir that you're making." And I think that's interesting that mm -hmm. the the controversy of Christianity was actually traveling faster than the message of Christianity, at least in Acts chapter twenty-eight. So I think that part of the point is they're trying to say, "Let's let's let's." back off of the things that could be the controversy. Now, again, the one that catches us here is sexual immorality. That's not a matter of preference. That's an absolute commandment of the doctrine of Christ. Right. But the other two are kind of questionable. And, and that's why I'm just not sure exactly the entire purpose and intent of this commandment. I think what you said makes a ton of sense. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, that, like I said, that that could be that these are the triggers. But at the same time, I struggle with, with Paul telling the Corinthians that the idol doesn't really matter. That whether you eat something and sacrifice to an idol or not is kind of irrelevant. I really struggle yeah. to put that into this context. Yeah, it's it's a head-scratcher, so to speak. Well, let's go ahead and jump to the um, chat room question real quick. Um, we're down to 15 minutes, and I really would like to finish the study today because we're not going to have a study next week. Oh, didn't I tell you that earlier? Yeah, we're not going to have a study next week. <laughs> We'll share more detail later with that. But so Gregor answers the question for us, and I'll bring it up there one more time. Now, uh, Peter makes the point about why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. And here's what Greg says. Uh, makes a very good point. He says, yoke being the law of Moses. That's right. Because nobody was ever perfect in the law. Even people of faith were shown to be imperfect but approved by their faith, King David, an imperfect man, for an example. And um, that's that's a very good point. Um, there's a lot of Bible passages that make the point that they did not keep the law. I mean, they, they tried to keep the law, but the law was not kept in a perfect fashion. Now the law of Christ is a better law, a better covenant. And um, you know, why are you trying to yoke them again to that, or hook them again to that yoke? All right, let's go ahead and read now the next section. Brian, you've not read yet, I don't believe. So if you would start reading there in verse 22 and read down to wherever my outline says. 22 through 29, I believe. Is that correct? You know, that, that sounds good. We will run with that. Uh, reading from the New King James Version. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Very well. All right. Thank you, Brian. So when we give consideration to what this particular section there, what I'd like for us to talk about real quick as time permits for the chat room is um, why did, let's bring this up here real quick, why did the elders and apostles send Judas and Silas to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas? Why did the elders and apostles send Judas and Silas to Antioch with Barnabas, with Paul and Barnabas? All right, so Brian, in the section you've read here, there's not a lot that, that we really need to talk about because we see the letter basically being developed here. But And, and this goes back to our discussion we had earlier. Would you view James's judgment as inspired by the Holy Spirit 
or simple common sense application of what had already been revealed by the Holy Spirit? That and and the answer to that is, is of course, yes. Um, yeah. That it, it, I mean, he does say it in verse 28, the Holy Spirit revealed this. But the Holy Spirit revealed this by the same way we the scriptures are revealed to us today, by these these tools that are put together, uh, tools of logic, tools of legal reasoning that we even use in our own legal understanding today of how we put together um, the concepts of understanding. So it is from the Holy Spirit. I, I wouldn't say in any way it isn't, but it's arrived at the same way we arrive at things, uh, conclusions all the time about the way we conduct ourselves or the way the church conducts itself or things like that. Okay. Yeah. See, what, what made me ask the question a little bit is the fact that they had individuals there who were prophets like Saul, Silas and, and Judas. Uh, but clearly the apostles were there as well and they had authority granted to them by God. And, but, but oftentimes I think about like in first Corinthians seven, you know, Paul says, um, not I, but the Lord says in the letter, he'll say, this is what I say, you know, not the Lord. And I think you have a case in point where, I mean, it's possible that they were directly inspired by the Holy Spirit in this conversation, but it does sound like that they are drawing the proper conclusions based on what the Holy Spirit has already revealed to the apostles, to the prophets, um, and so forth. Um, well, you have, uh, go ahead, Tom. Yeah. I was going to say, in, in reality, that's all we see in the text. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, grant that, grant there were inspired apostles and grant that there were prophets there, but notice how they reached their conclusion. It was, it was, uh, 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 uh command or writings, examples, approved examples and, and necessary conclusions. Yeah. I agree. I agree. All right. Any other thoughts about this letter here from either of you? We're down to three, uh, by the way. Uh, what's that? <laughs> so we're down yeah, to three real, of us. Okay. One, one real, one kind of interesting point that we bring out every once in a while in verse number eight is, uh, uh, there were those who said, uh, you must keep the law to whom we gave no such command. They were very, very, very straightforward. Yeah. This was not us. And, and I also like the fact, Tom, that they came to Paul and Barnabas's defense. They effectively said you should have listened to them. Yeah. You know. Exa um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they, they've suffered a lot. They, and, and, and this is, this is what they were trying to teach the people in the first place. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Was there anything else in this text here within the letter? And again, we've already talked about a good bit of this in regards to the previous discussion, the previous section there. And the, the question for the chat room, and I'll, we'll talk about this very briefly. We didn't have a answer. There's not a lot of time, of course, to answer it. Um, but I wonder, they sent Judas and Silas. My thoughts would be because they were prophets and they were um, noted individuals. And so they very easily could back up with the letter that Paul and Barnabas was carrying, they would give authenticity or witness to the fact that, yes, this is genuine and this is truly what the will of God is. And, and Gregor, yeah. Gregor says that witness is there to double the source. And that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. And, right. and, and, and you know what? I, I, I would just real quickly add to that. Uh, they sent, they sent uh, who they sent for the same reason that Antioch sent who they sent. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's responding. And by the way, it's interesting because one of them isn't going to really come back to Jerusalem for a while. So that's right. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's a good point. I was going to jump to uh, section number 30 through 35, and I'll go ahead and read that. Beginning there in verse 30, we'll read down through verse 35. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. 
Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. <clears throat> Pardon me. All right, so real quick, the chat room question is very, very simple. If you would, what was special, so to speak, regarding Judas and Silas? What do we learn about them? And we'll come back to that here in just a couple of minutes. So th this is a very simple passage. We have Paul and, and Barnabas going back to Antioch, and, and they share with the brethren there in Antioch the, the letter and everybody, there's rejoicing because of the encouragement. Um, it, Brian, do you have any thoughts about this section? Is there anything here that kind of uh, leaps out and says, talk about me? You know, not really. Uh, I really feel like, uh, um, you know, the we're just kind of repeating and getting it back in there. The only thing that had ever struck me about this is that, that I do think a lot of times there was a lot of second guessing about Paul's apostleship that I can't help but to wonder if it's not part of an underlying tone here. You get that picture in Galatians chapter two, when Paul first goes to Jerusalem and talks about Gentiles being converted and such, and, and, you know, kind of almost a, you know, a, a you know, a certification that happens there that second Corinthians seems to come back with some suggestion that Paul's not as genuine apostle as, as he claims to be. And that, that these men coming back up too, I can't help but to wonder if part of their purpose there is to certify, you know, yeah, Paul is exactly who he claims to be. And all of us agree with that. Um, that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of extrapolated from this uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit broadly, but you know, maybe there's a point there. Okay. I appreciate that. Tom, any thoughts? Yeah. I also see in these verses, the unifying of the gospel. I mean, I mean, that's, that's the reality. They dealt with a problem. They worked through it and so on. And both sides of it were united with each other. Yeah. When, when, yeah. when they were done, or at least doctrinally, they should have been. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, chat room question. We just got a reply from Gregor. And what was special, if you would, about Paul, about Silas and Judas? Both were prophets. Uh, apparently long-winded prophets. Uh, they encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. <laughs> I missed that, and I read it. That's a very good point, verse 32. Here, let's bring that up again. He says, there Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, exhorted and strengthened brethren with many words or with a long message. That's a good comment. Good, good catch with that. Um, what I find that, that, interesting that speaks to Tom preaching. You know, there's where Tom uh, gets his ordination from. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you where I get my ideas in a few minutes. Just when we get done with this, so I'll, I'll yeah. tell you where I get. It. Um, what keep in mind, and this is really why I asked about what was special about Judas and Silas in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. He talks about the household of God being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Um, so when you see that, that phrase, apostles and prophets, I don't think he's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament time frame. I mean, there might be some argument for part of that, obviously, because they foretold the coming of Christ in the church. But I really think there he's talking about the prophets of that day of the first century who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, such as Judas and Silas, and, and and others that are mentioned within the biblical text. Agreed. Agreed. I think that's exactly what it means. Okay. All right. Now, the last section, and I don't have a chat room question, so you can just um, sit back and, and enjoy what you're about to hear. Let's hear the soothing voice of Tom read for us, verses 36 through the remainder to the end of the chapter. All right. Well... I'm waiting for the soothing voice of Tom. So. Anyways, I'll read it anyways. So um, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them in the work. Then the convention became so sh the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. 
But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right, thank you, Tom. Paul, or Brian, I may have been wrong. Did I complete a, a question for the chat room on this section? You did. I thought maybe you were subtly hinting at me not to drop it. So I No, didn't. I forgot uh, about it. It just dawned on me as, as, as Tom was reading there. So if you'll bring that up here real quick, the question has to do with relationships among brethren. What can we learn from this text that would be a good lesson of application regarding relationships among brethren? So I'll throw that up there real quick. I worded it a little bit differently. But what is the lesson that we can learn real briefly from this section? So you have Paul and Barnabas. They're done. They want to, they want to go. Paul wants to go back on a return trip and visit the congregations that they had, um, helped establish on their first journey there. Barnabas was thinking, you know, we need to give John Mark another chance. Let's take him with us. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. He left us before in Pamphylia. We need to, to leave him here and, and he's not going to go with us right now. Brian, it says the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Without kind of overstepping on the uh, chat room question, you got any comments about uh, this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas? Um, you know, and it's kind of tough because just about anything we say kind of falls into that category, what we asked the chat room too. I think what's so interesting about this debate, this division, is that obviously it has a dramatic consequence. The, the most powerful partnership, if, if you let me, you know, kind of draw my own opinion here, uh, the most powerful partnership in the New Testament between two incredible workers uh, diverges. Now, I'm going to suggest it doesn't necessarily mean it was a, a you know, a, a, a hostile division or anything like that. It might just well have been a, you know, I think the best choice here is you go this way. You've got work to do here. I go this way. I've got work to do here. There's a lot of work to do. And I don't think, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily imply that the that their dissension was hostile or unchristian-like. And I think that what's interesting is that there isn't a right or wrong answer necessarily. Um, I can see Paul's perspective. You know, Mark, Mark wasn't, you know, uh, wasn't faithful, didn't stick with us before. And I don't know if we can trust him. I can see Barnabas's perspective. You know, I gave people second chances. I gave you a second chance. You know, why don't, uh, why don't we give him a second chance? So I can see either way, there's no sin involved in this division. It's just, uh, you know, it's just a fascinating record of how sometimes brethren don't agree and how that can cause distinctions. You know, I always think of Philippians 4 when Paul uh, urges the two sisters there, uh, uh, Syneche and, uh, I can't remember, Eutychus. Uh, and he says, I urge the you brothers to help them to get along. doesn't ever accuse anybody of sinning. It just says sometimes people just have trouble getting along. I think there's a, there's a big idea there. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, let me ask this question real quick to Tom. Tom, do you think that there might have been... Um, everything that took place, including John's departure, might have been part of the will of the Lord to lead to having two groups to go out. Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, uh, God works not only miraculous, but providentially. So, I mean, uh, uh, that's very much a possibility uh, of that taking place. That's probably the, the best I can say on that. Yeah, it, I mean, it could be the situation where it, it just happened, and it happened yeah. that that when everything was said and done, two different groups were going. But it also could have been the will of the Lord for the two to split up. I mean, you might say we see something oddly similar with the persecution of Stephen causing the the Christians um, who had remained in Jerusalem to leave Jerusalem. You know, something. Something had to come, something had to cause that, and it did. And maybe, maybe this is related to it, maybe not. Um, as far as could, could be caused by the Lord, could be just, um, circumstantial the way that it happened. But the, my point is the end result, of course, is that, uh, Paul here, he chose Silas, and they departed. Silas, who was a prophet, and Barnabas took Mark, and they sailed over to Cyprus. Um, and so we got two different groups now going, teaching the will of the Lord. Yeah, you All know, right. uh, um, wasn't it on Cyprus where uh, Mark left? Um, 
I didn't. I thought, I thought it was when they got to Asia. I, I, am I remembering wrong? I, I think it was after Cyprus, but my point might be, and Barnabas takes him back to where he had his concerns and so on, and he, he resolves them. It's when they left Pamphylia, yeah. and that's going to be in Acts chapter 13. Um, there after their time I threw it, on. I threw it up and uh, I threw it on our YouTube chat and our private chat. So. Right. Oh, in verse 13 there. That's right. You know, and I do think it's interesting that Barnabas yeah, and maybe even Mark, since they're related, uh, Barnabas is from Cyprus. So I kind of see a lot of logic in that. But, yeah, uh, that's a good point. So you're right. John Mark didn't leave until after the incident on Cyprus. Right. There. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, Brian, we got that brought up there. All right, back to anyway, the chair. I, I, was just curious, I was just curious about that. I find it interesting. Barnab Barnabas takes them back to the area where very likely problems occurred or whatever, and he and he resolves it or helps Could've him been. resolve it there. Yeah. Because we know later on, Mark will be useful to Paul. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. All right, so the, the chat question for this section was very, very simple. It was... Regarding relations with others, what can we learn from Paul and Barnabas in this section? And Gregor says disagreement occurs. Paul may have forgiven Mark, but not trusted. So they went separate ways. You know, I do think that there are a lot of times brethren will disagree with one another or something will happen that's not sinful, but we act like it's sinful. But it's not. Yeah. There's a disagreement, uh, bad moods, low blood sugar, not enough sleep, cross-eyed looks, assumptions made, things like that. Just disagreement and how to do something. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's the way that we behave towards our brethren and the lack of love that is therefore then manifested is where sin comes into the picture. You know. I, I like what Gregor said there about Paul may have forgiven him, but trust was a different issue. Um, I, I think that's actually a, a pretty substantial observation there, yeah. that there are a lot of roles in the church, for example, that somebody betrays a trust in, and the church may forgive them, but it may not mean necessarily that the church says, well, we're going to bring you right back to that role or something like that. You can, you know, you probably can think of examples like I can of either deacons or elders or evangelists who in some way lost the confidence of the congregation by their behavior. Yeah. They may be forgiven by it, but but the trust of saying we trust you to take that work back on may not be there. That's not a matter of forgiveness. Sometimes, you know, forgiveness is something we give freely, but trust might be a little different. And maybe this is an example that trust has to be earned to a degree. And just like Tom said a second ago, Mark certainly goes on to earn Paul's trust as time progresses. And it could have been an age and experience thing. Paul yeah, might have yeah. said, he's too young. We took him out too early. He couldn't handle it. And he's got some issues he's dealing with. I want to wait till he's older. And Barnabas says, no, I think he needs to be trained. I mean, anything could have been said. Yeah. But. That's, a, that's a great point. Uh, you know, Mark, may, Mark, almost certainly being the author of the gospel or the gospel of Mark, may be that young man who out in the, when Jesus was arrested, ran off, you know, and identifies himself as that being that young man, perhaps. So yeah. if so, as you say, he may well have been a very young man or still a relatively young man whenever he goes out on this work possible yeah it's a good point I, I i forgot about that he was present in the garden and so we've got maybe a good 10 years later give or take yeah. Yeah. But, but if he's if he's a teenager in the garden you know it does say like i said it gives us that statement that he's a young man yeah. uh that he's a youth that you know uh he's probably not 30 yet there's a lot to learn you know before that time you know even jesus didn't start preaching before 30 so that's true you know, that's an interesting observation okay all righty. Well, that brings us to the end of the chapter. Any uh, thoughts or comments on this as we close? Uh, Tom, let me throw it to you first. Uh, no, uh, it, it's been a good it's been a good study. Uh, a lot of lessons to learn from these chapters, and we've we've gone over some of the basics. So, look forward to our returning. And actually, I'm not going to be here in two weeks, so I'll see you all in three weeks. Okay. All right, Brian. Any final thoughts? No, I would say if there's two factor points here, the first is that we saw uh, the first century church, which had prophetic gifts, rely on the very things we have to rely on in order to understand God's will for us, which are commandments, examples, necessary inference. 
that's an important thing to understand. Secondly, I, I think that the division between Ball and Barnabas is, is an important lesson for us too. Sometimes divisions occur and it need not be that somebody has sinned. It just may be that, that different perspectives uh, require us to work separately sometimes and, and that might happen too. Those are both true factoring points I would suggest. I appreciate that. It's a good idea. Very, very good points with that. Okay, so we've come to the end of our study. What about next week? I referenced this earlier. Well, next week, um, I'm going to be on vacation and hopefully getting prepared to hold my new grandbaby if she'll cooperate and everything. I'm supposed, I'm trying to do this like I'm holding a baby. I do know how to hold a baby, trust me. Um, and Paul is also going to be on vacation that week. And so we decided to go ahead and I think there was even someone else had a conflict. Wasn't yeah, it you, Brian? Okay, so so we decided to cancel next week's study. So we're going to come back in two weeks, Lord willing. Without Tom, we'll suffer through. But <laughs> we'll come back on the 17th of July with Acts chapter 16. Thank you so much for joining us for the, uh, the study today. Uh, Greg, we appreciate your participation in the chat room. I never did look to see if the Facebook stream ever settled out. I'm not sure about that. But we'd like to thank you for being with us. And so that'll be two weeks, and that'll be right here at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time and 12 o'clock Eastern Time. And 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful two weeks.